This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. With many thanks to our guest writer for their help with this episode. At height of the rush hour on the morning of February the 28th, 1975, reports began to emerge of a major rail crash on the northern line of the London Underground. The BBC reported... Quote, the 8.37 train from Drayton Park to Moorgate was packed with commuters going to work when it overshot the platform and ploughed into a dead-end tunnel at 8.46. Passengers waiting on Moorgate's Platform 9 said the train appeared to shudder and accelerate as it arrived at the station. It failed to stop and carried on past the platform into the overrun tunnel and smashed through a sand barrier and into the brick wall at 30 miles an hour, unquote. 300 passengers were on board the T272 service that morning and with 74 requiring hospital treatment and over 40 dead, this was the worst peacetime accident ever to happen on the tube. But what caused the accident to happen was a mystery. Had the driver, a 56-year-old family man, suffered a seizure or heart attack whilst at the controls of the train? Or was there something wrong with the train, track or signalling that prevented him from applying the brakes? Or did the driver deliberately accelerate his train into a solid brick tunnel wall? putting the lives of over 300 people in very real, very immediate danger. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 28, The Moorgate Rail Disaster. London's Tube is the oldest subterranean railway in the world, running its first train in 1863. The Northern Line opened in December 1890 and runs from southwest to northwest London. At the time of the crash, London Underground also ran a short self-contained branch, running from Drayton Park, just over 2.38 miles to Moorgate. As a consequence of the short distance, train crew would work what were effectively shuttle services up and down the line for the whole of their shift. Moorgate had 10 platforms and at the end of platform 9 was a red warning light on top of a post in the middle of the track. It was positioned directly in front of a sand track placed on the track to stop overrunning trains going into the overrun tunnel. There was also a hydraulic buffer in the middle of the track, in the overrun that had not been functioning for some time prior to the crash. The sand drag and the buffer would have slowed a train travelling at low speed if the driver were to misjudge the platform stop, however they were not designed or able to stop a faster running train. Inside the carriages, the layout was a familiar mixture of transverse seating and large standing areas in the door bays. The driver's cab had a doorway into the passenger compartment, 
and at the other end of the train, a guard's position was provided with door controls and an emergency brake handle. The branch line was controlled from signal boxes at Drayton Park and Moorgate. The signal box at Moorgate was at the north end of Platform 9. The signalling, which was installed in 1937, had a two-aspect stop signal, red and green, controlled by track circuits that sensed the train on the track. If a train passed a signal at danger, it would have the brakes applied automatically. Leslie Newson woke early on Friday the 28th of February 1975. At 56 years old, he was well used to the early mornings and long days working as a driver for the London Underground Tube Service. Six years earlier, he had been interviewed, given a full medical and passed as completely fit to undertake the demanding role of working on the underground. He initially began work as a guard, ensuring passenger safety, opening and closing the train doors at stations, communicating with the driver and operating the brake in emergency situations. And in January of 1974, he was passed out to become a driver. Leslie was a committed driver and enjoyed his work. He was methodical and thorough and had only ever had two days off of work for sickness since he joined six years earlier. On that early Friday morning in February, Leslie shaved and got dressed in his full uniform. He grabbed his working timetable, as well as updated notices and his rule book, which he kept covered in plastic material to protect the covers from wear. He also kept two notebooks that contained hints on how to deal with defects and failures on trains. Leslie lived with his wife and had two daughters, one of whom had already blessed him with a grandchild. Leslie finished up his first cup of tea and said goodbye to his wife. He kissed her on the forehead and left his third floor flat in New Cross, South East London. He hopped onto the number 21 bus, clutching his work papers and flask of tea. He also had around £200 in his bag, which is around £2,000 today, or $2,800. After work, he would be buying his daughter her first car and he was excited. He was also thinking about a new camera he had promised himself. Leslie arrived at work at 6.10am, well before his duty starting time of 6.24am. He reported to Relief Clark Brown, who was the acting station manager at Drayton Park. Part of his duty was to book on the train crews as they reported for duty. Leslie appeared perfectly normal to Relief Clark Brown that morning. Brown was having problems crewing trains as some of the staff had not arrived in time for their rostered duties. He had already put his only available spare guard on the first train out, T271, the service before Leslie's, and Robert Harris, the guard for Leslie Newson's service, was also late for duty. 
he called in to acting station manager Brown and agreed that he should go straight to Moorgate Station and await for Leslie's first service to arrive from Drayton Park and pick up his guard duties from there. This meant that Brown had to find another member of staff to act as guard on Leslie's first run to Moorgate, where guard Harris would board and take over. Waiting in the office was driver Rosario. He volunteered to work Leslie's service as guard from Drayton Park to Moorgate. As Leslie had arrived early, he had plenty of time to join his colleagues for another cup of tea before starting duty at 6.24am. He shared some milk from his flask with one colleague and then with driver Gladding, who was scheduled to take out train 273, the one after Leslie's. He asked if he could borrow some sugar. Perhaps significantly, Leslie said, quote, Go easy with it. I shall want another cup when I come off duty, unquote. Then driver Larig arrived. He was due to take the first service T271 with the spare guard and Leslie's service T272 would follow. As Larig approached, Leslie cheerfully told him which track T271 was standing on. All of Leslie's fellow drivers and guards seemed to like him. Guard Catney, who had known Leslie for two years, described him as a cheerful chap one could have a joke with. Leslie then left to prepare his train and get ready for his first journey to Moorgate. Rosario, the driver who had volunteered to act as guard on Leslie's train on the first run to Moorgate, went over to join the train at about 6.40am. Rosario had five years' experience as a driver, most of it on this branch line. Leslie was already sitting in the North End cab when he arrived. They agreed to double-end the train, which basically means that each man would drive in one direction only, without changing ends, with the other man acting as a guard. He then went to the South End cab where, at Leslie's insistence, he carried out a brake test in accordance with railway regulations. All was perfectly normal. In fact, that train had been fully inspected prior to that day's service, and this included testing the operation of the dead man's handle and braking system. Rosario then drove the first service to Moorgate, incident-free, and said that the train handled in a perfectly normal manner and confirmed that the braking system was operating normally. After stopping at Moorgate and shutting down the South End cab, Rosario walked back along the train and collected the guard's key from Leslie, who was in what had been the rear guard's position. By this time, guard Harris, who should have been working the train, had arrived at Moorgate and Rosario handed the guard's keys over to him so that he could act as guard whilst Leslie drove the service back to Drayton Park. The train then made its return journey where Harris and Leslie swapped ends as normal so that Leslie could drive the next run to Moorgate. Guard Harris spoke to Leslie between journeys and told him he was going camping after work. Leslie responded, quote, you must be mad. I roughed it enough at Dunkirk. I would rather have a hotel. 
unquote. After this, Leslie and Guard Harris made two further trips on T-272, and then, with Leslie at the controls, prepared to make its journey from Drayton Park at 8.39am. A number of passengers ran down the steps to the platform and generally passed forwards towards the first three carriages. The regular commuters knew that the exit at Moorgate was closest to the first three carriages. One passenger, 20-year-old Marion King, was on her way to work at a banking head office when she noticed the first carriage was very full. She decided to use the second set of doors to get on the train, where the carriage was still fairly full, but she grabbed onto a ceiling strap and the train began to move. It was running 30 seconds late, but Leslie was keen to make up time, seeing as his proper first break was scheduled for 9am. At the controls, Leslie's left hand rested on the brake handle and right hand on the master controller, a rotating lever that applied increasing traction current to the motors of the train. The master controller used the dead man's handle safety system. This safety measure was designed to eliminate the possibility of the train running away because of the death of a driver through a heart attack or other sudden fatal illness. The spring-loaded handle required the driver to hold it down when applying power, if for any reason, including the spontaneous incapacity of the driver, the pressure on the handle would be released. Even if the handle stayed in the power-on position, the power is shut off and the emergency brakes are applied, bringing the train safely to a halt. The theory of this system is that only a fully conscious and physically capable driver can continue to apply the power to the motors of the train to drive it forward. There were also two braking systems on the train. Leslie would have received an audible warning in the form of a loud hissing noise in the event of a fault on the main system, in which case he would move the brake handle into the emergency position when both systems would be operated again, bringing the train safely to a halt. At Highbury and Islington Station, the first stop on the line, newspaper journalist Peter Patterson boarded the second carriage of the train. He realised it was raining and had tried to get a taxi, but for fear of arriving to an interview late, he decided to take the tube instead. Peter watched the doors close behind him and stood up to read the paper, his back to the front of the train. The T272 proceeded normally towards Moorgate, making its scheduled stop through to Old Street, the penultimate stop. As passengers shuffled off and new passengers made their way into the six carriages, Leslie checked the brakes and Marion King continued her journey on the T272 holding the ceiling strap with one hand and a novel in the other. The total number of passengers at this moment in the journey was around 3,000. The approach to Moorgate from Old Street Station has what's referred to as a scissors crossover track arrangement, just before Moorgate, 
allowing trains to switch between lines located prior to platforms 9 and 10, with a speed limit of 40 miles per hour. The Moorgate signal cabin set the road for T272 to enter platform 9 in plenty of time for the train to have an unrestricted approach and everything seemed normal. Leslie's station stops that day were all very good and he had used the additional Westinghouse break at Old Street on each southbound trip in accordance with railway regulations. By this point, Guard Harris decided to leave his position, including the emergency brake applicator, in search of a newspaper to read. The journey would soon be coming to an end as the train was just around 500 yards away from its final destination at Moorgate. Leslie was a skilled driver and his usual technique on approach to Moorgate was to shut off power early and to coast some distance before making a series of fairly gentle brake applications, and that his normal speed through the crossover and into the platforms at Moorgate was about 10 miles an hour. When the guard's position at the back of the train passed the signal cabin on Moorgate station, Leslie's train would be at the point of stopping, travelling around 5 miles an hour. Guard Harris made his way back to the guard's position, but stopped to read advertisements. He suddenly noticed, however, that on his approach to Moorgate Station, the train wasn't beginning to slow down. It was actually accelerating. As the train gathered speed, Guard Harris realised the horrifying reality. He was at the far end of the carriage, nowhere near the emergency brake. Up to this point, the passengers on board hadn't had any kind of concern about the journey to Moorgate. In fact, as the train failed to make its usual brake application when approaching the station, some passengers assumed it was just the driver leaving it a little late to brake. As the train approached the north end of the platform, passengers, to their horror, realised their train was accelerating, not braking as expected. One passenger, now realising that the train was going to crash, hung on to the bar at his left-hand side of his seat and braced himself for the impact. The train was now travelling at 36 miles per hour. As T272 reached the end of Platform 9, It ploughed into the red marker light and hit the sand drag. It exploded, with sand being thrown into the tunnel atmosphere. On board, passengers felt the train decelerate slightly as it hit the sand drag. Then, the train slammed into the end of the overrun tunnel. Darkness engulfed the six carriages and the piercing noise of the crash metal and glass breaking took over. This was followed by deafening silence. Shock. Quiet. And then an ear-piercing scream, followed by shouting, crying and smoke. The front coach of the train had buckled into a tight V, with the driver's cab impacted against the tunnel roof. 
The complete 52-foot length of the first carriage had concertinaed into a space of only 20 feet. The second coach had driven forward beneath the rear end of the leading coach and the bodywork at the leading end was crushed. Javier Gonzalez, a passenger sitting next to the second set of doors, had been reading a newspaper when he felt the train shudder. He peered over the top of his newspaper and saw a woman sitting opposite him. Suddenly, the train collided with the end of the tunnel. The lights went out and the sudden impact forced Javier into a place which seemed, quote, white and peaceful. I was kind of floating in the air, happy, but then went to another place, very hot, full of screams, and I did not want to be there. Unquote. The station had been left in complete darkness, engulfed by dust and soot. The woman Javier had seen over the top of his newspaper just before the crash had been killed instantly. In the second carriage, Peter Patterson, the newspaper journalist who boarded at Highbury and Islington, noticed the faces of the commuters around him shift into fear and astonishment before the entire carriage went dark and they were engulfed in soot, heat and smoke. The Moorgate signalman who had watched in horror as T272 passed his signal box at 30 miles an hour and ploughed into the overrun tunnel, immediately called the London Underground Headquarters Control for assistance and Guard Harris opened the door of the rear carriages to allow passengers to escape. London police officer Kip Laced-Door was the first of the emergency services on the scene. He asked a ticket collector at the barrier about the crash, but he had no idea what Kip was talking about. As he made his way down towards the platform, he noticed smoke had started to come up from the tunnel. He began to run down the platform, attempting to smash the windows with his truncheon. He did manage to do this with some success, but tragically, he knew that most of the passengers would be in the front carriages because Moorgate was the final stop. Kip helped some passengers out of the last carriages and then to the way out. One passenger who arrived at Platform 9 just moments after the crash noticed huge dark clouds of smoke. She noticed the carriage in front of her was much shorter in height than it should have been. It was almost impossible to breathe and just then a firefighter rushed past shouting for everyone to go back upstairs. The woman went quickly following other scared passengers and passing more emergency workers as she went. Anthony Madden, a junior doctor at St Bart's Hospital, had been told by his boss that he needed to attend an accident at Moorgate Tube Station where a tube train had hit the buffers. This instruction was given to him a little before 9am and the true extent of the disaster wasn't yet known. Anthony's boss assured him it was probably just a few people with some bruises and superficial wounds and offered for a medical student to accompany him. When Anthony and the med student arrived at Moorgate, they were ushered downstairs onto the dark, dusty platform. 
It was immediately clear that this crash was much more severe than they had first thought. The only light came from a few emergency light fixtures that had been set up, and there were firefighters everywhere. Anthony made his way into the next carriage and found 27-year-old Jeff Benton. He was trapped in the same carriage as 19-year-old police officer Margaret, who had been trapped by one of her feet. The floor had buckled and she wasn't able to free herself, although other than that, she was unharmed, so firefighters worked to attempt to free her. Every time she moved, she would cause a shift in the flooring and it would cause Jeff to be in absolute agony. Firefighters continued to work to free them both. Anthony then made his way into the further end of the tunnel and went into the next carriage. Access in general was proving to be very difficult. He couldn't believe the extent of the disaster. The carriage itself was mangled and there were bodies everywhere. The roof had collapsed in and he noticed that no one was wearing any kind of protective gear. He saw another man trapped by dead, contorted bodies. The first carriage was wedged over the second with the rear door up well above head height. By this point, Anthony was joined by Dr. Phil Finch, who found a woman trapped by a section of the roof that had come down on top of her after she was thrown over the front of a seat. She was in agony, so Dr. Phil Finch gave her a drip and morphine. She died shortly afterwards. When Anthony came out, he was only able to get back onto the platform by squeezing through between the carriage and the wall. By this time, there were a lot of doctors on the scene because another London hospital had been alerted and set up a casualty clearance section. By now, because of the reports beginning to come in from staff members and the public, the City of London Police realised this was a major incident. As well as telling the Fire and Ambulance Service and St Bart's, they contacted the medical unit of British Petroleum at Finsbury Circus, which is close to Moorgate. British Petroleum had its own medical staff, and Dr Donald Dean and a team of two doctors and two nurses, unaware of the seriousness of the incident, walked around to the station to assist. Once Dr Dean had seen the extent of the tragedy, He realised that he had nowhere near enough drugs to treat the injured, either with him or back at the BP stores. So he rushed to the local retail branch of Boots, the chemist, where the pharmacist gave him the shop's entire supply of morphine and pethidine. The fire service had now inspected the extent of the damage and immediately upgraded the alert to that of a major incident. Now the whole of London was involved with additional ambulances and fire engines coming from all over the capital to help the rescue effort. It was impossible to estimate the number of casualties involved with any degree of accuracy because the lighting was poor. The victims were all tangled together and everything was covered with a thick layer of black dust. Many of the victims were writhing in agony and were screaming for individual attention, 
It was obvious from an early stage that the main problem was the disentanglement of a heap of people, many of whom appeared to be in imminent danger of suffocation. Steve Gleason was a member of the Lambeth Blue Watch Fire Service that morning. He and his colleagues took their spreading and cutting gear down to the platform, and as they did, they were met with firefighters helping passengers up the escalators to safety. The people coming from the platform below were covered in soot, dust and blood. Steve was met with one carriage, half of it at the platform and the rest of it inside the tunnel. The group made their way inside the tunnel and began attempting to rescue people. Steve managed to squeeze through a small gap between the wall of the tunnel and the side of the train. A different crew had already started work ahead of them. They had cut a hole in the end of the train carriage and they used it to make their way through to the next carriage. There, Steve met a senior officer who instructed him and his team to go through to the next carriage and then onto the roof. All of the crews worked continuously to rescue the trapped passengers and crew. New crews came in when exhaustion struck, but no one wanted to leave. Temperatures were as high as 33 degrees Celsius, so most of the firefighters removed their tunics, belts and helmets to allow them to continue working. The fire crews worked quickly, and soon the last casualty had been removed from the third carriage, although there were still 50 casualties in carriages 1 and 2. At 9.30am, the City of London Police cordoned off many of the surrounding roads to allow access for fire and also ambulance crews taking casualties to hospitals. Having put all fire stations in London on alert, it was becoming increasingly clear to everyone how serious this was, so another message was sent by London Fire Brigade headquarters warning that, quote, this incident will be protracted. By 10am, a medical team from the London Hospital was setting up a makeshift operating theatre on a platform near the triage team. However, none of this was easy for the emergency services. Platform 9 was 21 metres underground, and fire and ambulance crews had to carry all the equipment they needed through the station and down to the scene of the accident. The depth at which they were operating and the shielding effect of the soil and concrete meant their radios could not get through to the surface. Messages and requests for further supplies were passed by runners, which led to mistakes. One doctor requested further supplies of the pain-killing gas Entenox, but there was unbelievable difficulty with communication, and by the time the request reached the surface, it had been garbled to... Quote, the doctor wants an empty box. The fire brigade deployed a small team with Figaro, an experimental radio system that by 1975 standards worked in deep locations. On the surface, things were just as chaotic. Moorgate is in the heart of the City of London, with financial institutions and stock market trading in the area. Local office workers reported, quote, We were all looking out of the window and saw hundreds of people staggering out of the tube. 
They were all black, covered in soot and dirt. They were moving around without any real purpose. It was a surreal sight. One of the traders staggered into the trading room, totally covered in soot. He still had his briefcase, and then someone asked what had happened and brought him a mug of tea. By this time, the wail of sirens had filled the air, and all sorts of ambulances, fire engines and police were at the scene. Our first thoughts were that it had been a bomb. Unquote. Another London worker was walking to work in the city. Quote, I suddenly came across many people with black faces covered in soot. They were sometimes wandering around, dazed or hurrying to work as normal. I did not know that there had been a tube crash. Just how does one react to large numbers of people who may be injured or traumatised, wandering off after an accident? Later on, the enormity of the situation came to us. Unquote. And another said, quote, I was based in Finsbury Circus and on the morning of the disaster, I had arrived at work, as usual, at 8am. So when the news of what had happened started to arrive, we all had a bird's eye view of what was going on in Moorgate, directly opposite one of the entrances to the station. The sight I remember the most, as we watched throughout the day, was of the firemen, who had obviously spent some time doing their duty underground, being brought up and having to be revived. So exhausted were they. They looked like miners coming up from a shift at the coalface. Unquote. Firefighters witnessed horrific scenes, described by witnesses, survivors and workers as hell. Below the surface of the bustling, hectic and panic-ridden streets were still tens of people needing rescuing. The scenes were truly terrifying, with numbers of dead people sitting on the tube seats and some still clenched to ceiling straps but also dead. Quote, In one doorway there was a row of businessmen, some still with their briefcases, standing as they would have been, waiting for the train to stop, but all dead. Unquote. There were so many bodies that they were having to be passed along a human chain of firemen. Working conditions for the emergency services deteriorated throughout the day. Although nothing was easy in the rescue, fire and ambulance crews could gain access to carriages 3 to 6, but it was almost impossible to get to carriages 1 and 2 because they were mangled and compressed in the overrun tunnel, with parts of the carriage pressing up against the roof of the tunnel and other parts of the carriage pressing into the track bed. Fire crews trying to rescue people found it difficult to make out the profile of the carriages at all. Such was the chaotically mangled and compressed mess inside the overrun tunnel. What's more, the crash had thrown soot and dirt into the air from the sand drag and from between the two metal layers of the tube carriages. Everything was covered with a thick layer of the residue which was easily disturbed. The lamps and cutting gear used by the fire service raised the temperature to over 49 degrees Celsius. That's 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And oxygen levels began to drop to dangerously low levels. This is because in the deep lines at Moorgate, 
Ventilation is created by the piston effect created by trains forcing air through the tube lines. With services stopped, as they obviously had to be while the rescue was taking place since the crash, no fresh air was reaching platforms 9 or 10. A large electric fan was placed at the top of the escalators in an attempt to remedy that situation, but because of the amount of soot and dirt, this didn't make things much better. The firefighters continued to work, but had to be relieved every 20 minutes or so, simply so they wouldn't pass out. They worked in just trousers and used hoses to cool themselves. Rescue workers continued by using hacksaws and basic cutting equipment to cut through the wreckage. They couldn't use power tools because of the danger to survivors. One woman, Marion, who had been reading a novel and holding the ceiling strap before the crash, had recovered consciousness for a moment, but in a state of confusion, assumed she was in bed and attempted to get up for work so as not to be late. She blacked out again for a number of hours before waking up to a firefighter's voice, attempting to keep her engaged and spirits high. Quote, Do you like dancing? Marion said yes and the firefighter replied, quote, Well, when you get out of here, I'll take you dancing. Eventually, Marion was freed and taken out of the train and to London Hospital. The doctor told her she had been very lucky. She only had a torn ligament and a severely bruised back. The family and friends of the victims, as well as the entirety of London and whole of the UK, looked on in disbelief at the casualty of the Moorgate disaster. During their time of need, a queue of over 2,000 people formed outside Moorgate, offering to donate blood and Salvation Army volunteers set up an area on nearby Platform 11, where workers could take a break and refresh before heading back in. Army officers set up a station to bathe sore eyes and use cotton buds to remove soot from survivors' and rescuers' ears and noses. Meanwhile nearby, a Portuguese cafe opened its doors to offer free coffee and donuts to the rescuers. As the news of the disaster spread, other ordinary everyday Londoners were getting involved in the rescue in whatever way they could. One said, quote, The doctors needed a large supply of salt for very hot rescuers. I went into a nearby restaurant and the owner appeared with a large sack of it. He later turned up with a sack barrow with crates of drink. A publican did likewise. Unquote. Another commented, quote, My overriding memory was seeing the blackened faces of firemen sitting outside of the tube station in the cold, drinking tea from local sandwich shops in complete silence. Unquote. A motorcycle police officer, called in early to work a late shift, remembered the endless offers of help. One man drove from near Southampton, 80 miles away because he had specialist welding knowledge and equipment to help. All of the crews wanted to stay and help the casualties they were with, but they were ordered out by senior officers to allow fresh crews to come in. Despite this, the situation was now becoming critical for those still trapped inside carriages one and two. The time was approaching midday, 
over three hours since the initial impact and there were still people trapped. One of the paramedics who worked on rescuing and treating the injured described one lady who was trapped over the back of a seat by the parcel shelf which was holding her down. Quote, She was so brave because she knew they were not going to be able to rescue her alive and she was just waiting quietly to die. Unquote. Javier Gonzalez, the man who had seen the woman just over the top of his newspaper die in front of him, described the rescue. Quote, I had been knocked unconscious and have no further memory until I heard a shout in the distance, is there anybody else there? And there was complete silence. Then my conversation instinct made me shout back, yes, I am here. The voice from the distance shouted again, asking, Can you move? I had my hands near my shoulders and I tried to lift myself up, but I could not because of my pain. I was not fully conscious, did not know where I was, but I shouted back, No, I cannot move. I then heard the distant voice shouting again, Cover your face up and we'll get you out. I crossed my hands behind my head and felt nothing, heard nothing. I was unconscious. The next thing I remember is that someone was lifting my body, holding me from under my armpits, and I asked him, Who are you? He said, I am David. I work for the rescue services. So I said, Thank you, David. But I do not know why I was saying all this. I still did not know where I was or what had happened. Unquote. Javier Gonzalez was rushed to St. Bart's Hospital, where he eventually recovered after many weeks in hospital. Steve Atwood, one of the ambulance crew, was working at Smithfield Ambulance Station near the Old Bailey on that afternoon, when he and his crew were brought in to relieve the morning crew at 3.30pm. The crew took over a completely stripped ambulance with only a radio, two hard hats and two wheeled stretchers on board. On arrival at the underground station, they were told to back the ambulance doors to the entrance, which was in front of the media, and to await the next casualty to be released. The woman, Margaret, who had her foot trapped in the floor, was, in the meantime, being seen to by doctors. By this time, it was around 6pm, so after hours of attempting to free Margaret, They had made the decision to amputate her foot in order to free her and Jeff, the man she had been trapped with. One doctor told Margaret they were going to have to put her to sleep in order to get her out. Margaret agreed, quote, That's fine. Who's going to take me? The doctor replied, quote, They're fighting for the privilege. Meanwhile, Steve Atwood and his crewmate were waiting in their ambulance at the entrance. They had been there for five hours when they heard the sound of emergency workers bringing Margaret out. Quote, We raced her to St Bartholomew's Hospital, just about one mile away, under police escort and with a team of surgeons in attendance in the back. Unquote. By 10pm, 14 hours after initial impact, it was finally possible to remove Jeff Benton, the last remaining survivor. He was lifted out of the first carriage and put onto a stretcher. He was polite and grateful, 
smiling as he was taken past the firefighters and doctors to be taken to hospital. Just three years before the crash, Jeff had married the love of his life, Valerie. The couple were only just beginning their life together. However, although Jeff had initially made good progress in hospital and was looking forward to getting out and continuing his life with Valerie, his condition began to deteriorate and on the 27th of March, nearly a month after his rescue, Jeff died in hospital of crush syndrome. Once Jeff had been recovered from the wreckage, all equipment was turned off and silence was ordered among the emergency services. Shouts were made to listen for any people trapped to respond. There were none. The site medical officer then sadly declared that all the remaining bodies in the wreckage were dead. By now, the news of the disaster had travelled around the world. Gerard Kemp of the Daily Telegraph, the only journalist allowed down into the tunnel, reported, quote, It was a horrible mess of limbs and mangled iron. One of the great problems for the rescue team was the intense heat down there. It must have been 120 degrees. It was like opening the door of an oven. Unquote. With no one left alive, the fire service were able to use flame-cutting equipment to separate the mangled carriages. At 1am on the 1st of March, engineers started to winch the third carriage away from the second until a body no one had seen dropped from the wreckage onto the track. Once the carriage had been removed, a doctor again checked for further signs of living casualties. None were found. Now the recovery crews experienced another problem. The use of the flame-cutting equipment caused oxygen levels to drop from the norm of 21% to 16%, and the smell of decomposition from the bodies trapped in the wreckage became almost intolerable. No one was allowed to work on the platform or tunnel for more than 20 minutes at a time, and they then had 40 minutes of recovery time on the surface. The danger of infection increased as conditions deteriorated, so all workers had to wear gloves and masks, and any cuts and abrasions had to be reported. No one with a cut was allowed to be involved in removing the bodies. One of the team helping to remove the crushed train described the conditions as hot and full of little flies. It was a miracle that so many people made it out given how high the temperatures were down there and how cramped it was for the rescuers. An air conditioning unit, donated by a local company, piped cool air into the tunnel and temperatures improved so that during the 1st and 2nd of March, the wreckage of the second carriage was cut away in sections. It could now be winched free. However, it wasn't until the 4th of March at 3.30pm four days after the incident, that the last passenger body was removed from the funk carriage. That left just the body of Leslie Newson, still at the controls of the leading vehicle, in the wreckage. Because the driver's cab had been so compressed by the impact, it was impossible to examine the front of the train and the position of Leslie in the driver's cab. 
On site were Gordon Hafter, London Underground's chief engineer, and Lieutenant Colonel Ian McNaughton, the chief inspecting officer of railways. As the leading carriage was winched back, they halted operation to make a close inspection of the train controls and Leslie's body. What they found was the driver's cab, which was normally 91 centimetres deep, had been crushed to just 51 centimetres deep. Leslie's body was positioned at his controls and although his head had been forced through the front window, his left hand was close to the driver's brake handle and his right arm was hanging down to the right of the main controller. His head was to the left of the dead man's handle, which had been forced upwards beyond its normal travel and was resting on his right shoulder. At 8.05pm on the 4th of March 1975, four days, 11 hours and 43 minutes after the incident, Leslie Newson's body was removed from the wreckage and the fire service were able to clear the remainder of the wreckage and hand back control of the platform to London Underground by 5am on the 5th of March. 1,324 firefighters, 240 police officers, 80 paramedics, 16 doctors and many, many nurses had been involved on site in trying to save the lives of those trapped 70 feet underground in darkness and dirt, not knowing if they were going to live or die. News of the crash shocked the world and the Prime Minister's office received telegrams of condolence from countries across the world. The nation, as a whole, seemed to enter a period of unofficial mourning, with a memorial service held at St Paul's Cathedral on the 19th of March 1975, attended by 2,000 people. And the Prime Minister Harold Wilson also received a telegram from the UK Islamic Mission expressing their condolences. On the 7th of March 1975, the Secretary of State for the Environment instructed Her Majesty's Inspector of Railways to undertake an investigation of the crash. The inquiry began on the 13th of March 1975. The report was not published until a little under a year later. The person in charge couldn't begin to compile his report until the inquest into deaths had been carried out by the coroner for the City of London. The post-mortem examination of the body of Leslie Newson found that the cause of death was shock from multiple injuries. Leslie was physically healthy for a person of his age. His lungs and heart were healthy and there were no drugs or poison in his body and he had no brain disease. The examination also investigated whether there had been a seizure, although none was traced. In case there had been an undiscovered electrical fault with the train, Leslie was examined for electrical burns or patterns on his body. There were none. His liver was normal, so bacteriological and toxicological examinations of specimens of blood and body fluids were made together with an analysis of the contents of a screw-top milk bottle found in Leslie's equipment bag after the accident. These yielded controversial results. Dr Anne Robinson, 
Senior Lecturer in Forensic Medicine at the London Hospital Medical College, carried out the tests. Because a decomposing body trapped in the high temperatures of the overrun tunnel for a period of days would naturally produce fermentation of alcohol in the corpse, she checked Leslie's specimen against those specimens taken from eight of the passengers killed in the accident, whose bodies had been under the same condition underground as Leslie's. She told the inquest that the bacterial and yeast content of the specimens found from the dead passengers, and also of the sour milk contained in the bottle, would not cause any significant formation of alcohol by fermentation. As a result, she concluded that Leslie had drunk alcohol on the morning of his death. The highest possible level of alcohol in the blood at the time of the post-mortem was of the order of 80 milligrams per 100 milliliters. However, Dr. Roy Golding, director of the poisons unit at Guy's Hospital, contradicted this finding, saying that although he could not state unequivocally that no alcohol at all had been consumed before death, if any had been, it must have been a very small amount. It's useful to note that the attitude towards alcohol 45 years ago was different from our attitude today. It was seen as a normal part of everyday life, with pubs packed at lunchtimes seven days a week, and for many, their local was a second home. However, throughout the inquest and subsequent inquiry, no evidence was ever presented that Leslie Newson had a problem with alcohol and no definitive evidence was presented that he had consumed alcohol before work on the morning of the crash, which had occurred some three hours after he left for work. At the inquiry, Leslie's wife and a friend of his described Leslie as a man of quiet, orderly habits who had never suffered from any serious illness and had never had blackouts or attacks of giddiness. He was not a daydreamer and had never been known even to overrun a traffic light when driving his car. With regard to the question of alcohol, Leslie's wife explained, Leslie was not a drinking man, although he enjoyed an occasional glass of brown ale. He rarely touched spirits, though there were both whiskey and Bacardi in the house, and Leslie's wife had never known him to take a tot of spirits before going to work on a cold morning, or to take spirits to work with him. Nor, to her knowledge, did Leslie take any sedatives, tranquilizers, or sleeping pills. She told the inquest he was never depressed and loved his work. The staff on the Highbury branch who had seen or spoken with Leslie that morning gave their accounts, concluding he seemed perfectly normal. Not one of them had ever thought that he had drunk spirits before starting work, and driver Lanick, who had poured milk from Leslie's bottle into his tea before they started work, did not taste or smell spirits in the milk. Signalman Wade also confirmed that he did not put any spirits into a cup of tea he gave to Leslie at Moorgate on one of his trips, nor did he smell spirits on Leslie's breath. Experts then gave evidence on the possible effects of alcohol on concentration and reaction times, combined with fatigue and the risk of automatism causing a trance-like state, accentuated by the effects of hunger, excessive warmth in the cab, and the flashing lights of the tunnel and stations. Could this have been the cause of the crash? 
the experts were unable to agree. Another medical expert suggested two medical conditions which could explain a paralysed state in an individual, which could be one possible explanation for the reason Leslie Newsom failed to apply the brakes when entering Moorgate Station. The first, a kinesis with mutism, is caused by a tiny clot in the area of the midbrain, and this can cause a person to freeze leaving muscle tone unaffected, which would cause Leslie to remain in an upright position, depressing the dead man's handle whilst unaware of what he was doing. The second possibility was transient global amnesia, a spasm of blood vessels in part of the brain, which could have caused Leslie to forget all of his previous training and experience, but would leave him otherwise unaffected. However, None of the witnesses on the platform described any sort of movement in Leslie as he drove through the station. And there was one further piece of significant evidence that suggested this last condition was not the case. The X-ray of Leslie's hands and forearms showed that at the time of the impact, the left hand had been gripping a solid object, likely to be the brake handle, and the right hand had been resting with the heel of the hand on the large circular knob almost certainly the dead man's handle. Leslie had not made the instinctive attempt to protect himself by raising his arms to protect his face and head. As far as the inquest could determine, Leslie Newsom was sitting at his controls with his hands on the controllers looking straight ahead, continuing to power the six-coach train, travelling at 36 miles per hour towards a solid brick wall without moving. If he had been suffering from transient global amnesia and had no idea how to control the train, he would still have lifted his hands and arms to protect his face at the moment of impact. It would have been an instinctive reaction. It was impossible to detect signs of either of these conditions in the brain post-mortem, either because of the advanced decomposition of the body or because the condition leaves no trace in the brain once it has occurred. The verdict returned by the inquest jury was accidental death, both in respect of Leslie Newson and the 42 passengers who lost their lives. Once the coroner's inquest was complete, the public inquiry could take place and the report summed up the events as, quote, According to all witnesses, the train accelerated normally away from Old Street and would have reached a speed of 30 miles per hour in some 28 seconds after travelling 250 yards, about one-third of the distance to Moorgate. At this point, from the description of motorman Newsom's driving technique by various witnesses, he might have been expected to shut off power and coast for some 15 seconds before making a fairly gentle brake application to reduce speed to 15 miles per hour or less at the crossover. As it was, it appears that the train continued to accelerate on full power and on this basis, it would have reached a speed of about 35 miles per hour as it entered the crossover, about 56 seconds after leaving Old Street. Based on the position in which the main controller handle was found, it would seem that Motorman Newson held it in this position until the collision took place, 
The traction power had been cut off less than two seconds before the final impact by the sand drag, unquote. The report continues, quote, Any hypothesis as to the cause of the accident must take into account this period of inactivity on the part of motorman Newson, during which time he remained sitting upright on his tip-up seat and holding the dead man's handle. Despite the lateral accelerations he would have experienced on traversing the 12-chain curve outside the station at about 35 miles per hour, if he was in some less than fully conscious condition, it must have been a condition in which he retained his balance and muscle tone during the whole period of apparent inactivity, unquote. The report goes on to confirm that there was nothing out of the ordinary in the handling or performance of the train. There were no skid marks or other indications of heavy braking, no fault on the train or dead man mechanism. In regard to this witness on the platform who had seen Leslie through the cab window just before the impact, the report explains the cab lighting switch was off so in order to assess the actual ability of witnesses on the platform at Moorgate to observe such details as Leslie's facial expression, the report investigator had paid a visit to Moorgate and observed the arrival at a normal slow speed of a number of trains at platform number 9, of which the drivers were, by arrangement, wearing their caps, some with the cab lights on and some with them off. The level of illumination provided by the station lighting was low, and with the cab lights off, the driver's face was in partial shadow. Though it was possible to see his general posture, it was certainly not easy to discern such details as the expression in his eyes, or the colour of his face. All the eyewitnesses who saw him as the train ran through the platform at Moorgate were in agreement though. He was sitting up in an alert posture, with his hands in front of him in a normal driving position. This they could have seen, and therefore the report investigator concluded that Leslie was conscious up to the moment of the collision, and he made no effort of any kind to stop the train. The investigator believed Leslie was both competent and safe in the way he normally drove, and he had adequate knowledge of the route so he did not mismanage the train or misjudge his approach. It was impossible to mistake Moorgate for any other location on the Highbury branch. With regards to the conflict of evidence about the levels of alcohol found during the inquest, the investigator found that there was no evidence to suggest that he was drunk or that he was in any way incapable of performing his duty as a driver and that it is generally accepted that as much as 80 milligrams of alcohol may make its appearance as the result of growth of microorganisms and fungi in a decomposing body, particularly after four days at a high temperature. The investigator's view was that alcohol was not a significant cause of this accident. Quote, The most notable feature about the sequence of events leading up to the crash is that there was no positive action of any kind by Leslie Newson from the train starting away from Old Street until the accident occurring some 36 seconds later. During this period of 36 seconds, the train entered the illuminated crossover chamber with a sudden change in environment in respect of noise level 
and the opening up of a direct view through the crossover chamber into the station ahead, with the red light on the sand drag clearly visible at a distance of some 200 yards. This should have been enough to bring Newson to his senses if his mind was wandering, and all he had to do was release the dead man's handle in order to avert the accident. As it was, he took no action of any kind. Newson's injuries were consistent with the driver having been seated at the controls at the time of impact, with his left hand on the brake handle, and as the inquest had found, there was no indication that the driver's hands were in front of his face at the time of impact. Unquote. The investigator said that the possibility that the collision was the outcome of a deliberate suicidal act cannot be ignored, although there is no positive evidence to support it. The two little-known conditions of a kinesis with mutism and transient global amnesia suggested at the inquest remain possibilities, but without any evidence in support of either one. The investigator concluded his report, quote, I am satisfied that there was nothing in his behaviour prior to leaving Old Street on the final run that could possibly have caused any other member of staff any worry or suspicion as to his driving capability. In my view, Guard Harris's behaviour cannot be regarded as having contributed in any way to the accident. I must conclude, therefore, that the cause of this accident lays entirely in the behaviour of Motorman Newson during the final minute before the accident occurred. Whether his behaviour was deliberate or whether it was the result of a suddenly arising physical condition not revealed as a result of post-mortem examination, there is not sufficient evidence to establish. But I am satisfied that no part of the responsibility for the accident rests with any other person and that there was no fault or condition of the train, track or signalling in any way that contributed to it." Unquote. After the tragedy and shock of the Moorgate disaster, London Underground introduced a number of changes at Moorgate and across the Underground network by the time Platform 9 reopened for passengers. The back wall of the tunnel was painted white and a large heavy-duty buffer preceded the sand drag. A speed limit of 10 miles per hour for all trains entering terminal platforms was introduced and operating instructions were changed so that the protecting signal at terminal platforms was held at danger until trains approaching were travelling slowly or had been brought to a stop, even though this caused delays and operating problems. Previous incidents of platform overruns started to be re-examined, if only by independent observers of the railway industry. In 1971, a driver had died when he crashed an empty train into buffers in a tunnel siding near Tooting Broadway. As a result, London Underground had been introducing speed controls at a variety of similar locations. By the time of the Moorgate crash, 12 of the 19 locations had the equipment installed, but in July 1978, approval was given for what was now called Moorgate Protection to be introduced at all dead-end termini on manually driven lines on the underground system. Approaching Moorgate's Platform 9, three timed train stops were installed. The first at the Scissors crossover, 
the second at the start of platform nine, and the third halfway down the platform. By placing resistors in the traction supply to trains, these prevented a train accelerating when entering the platform by interrupting the power to the train, and if the train passed any of the timed train spots at more than 12.5 miles per hour, the emergency brake would be applied. This system was operational in all locations by 1984. Even with the public inquiry and investigation into Moorgate Rail disaster, the entire blame really lay with Leslie Newson, as much of the evidential papers were locked away, out of public sight, and are unable to be viewed until 2051, when they will be declassified by government and open for public viewing. However, because the inquiry was unable to establish any logical reason as to why the accident happened, speculation, comment and accusations continue to this day. As early as 1976, a BBC special explored a number of issues about the crash, including inadequate driver training, and a report compiled by a London Transport Administrative trainee highlighted a significant number of incidents that had occurred on the tube on a regular basis, some of which were never reported. This included drivers going through stations without knowing that they had done so, and becoming disorientated because of the monotony of driving the same route a number of times each day. There was also the operating practice of leaving the lights in the tunnel on, just before a station that was closed, so the driver would know not to stop and to continue through to the next station. This last point is of potential significance because the lights were reported to be on by the scissor crossover on the day of the Moorgate disaster because of engineering works, although this is a point that the official report dismissed as unconnected with the events of the 28th of February. There were questions raised about a history of faulty dead man's handles, and also a statistical analysis showing that most tube incidents happened to drivers within two years of their qualification, and in the first two hours of their shift starting. Leslie Newson had been qualified for a year, and was two hours 14 minutes into his shift on the day of the accident. In 2016, on the UK government's National Archives blog page about the Moorgate crash, suggestions were again made, this time by members of the public and ex-railway staff, that occasionally the dead man's handle locked in a motoring position, and to disengage it, the driver had to isolate trip circuits before she or he could brake and stop the train, something Leslie may not have had time to do before the impact. There are unsubstantiated accusations of cover-ups and calls for a new judicial inquiry. The blog page of the UK Government National Archives was closed to comments shortly after these accusations. One of the contributors to a 2017 rail blog comments, quote, This was no accident. This was a disaster waiting to happen. LT had been running the network on a reactive basis since World War II and had persistently decided against installing trip mechanisms on the whole network. They were only installed after the Moorgate collision. Had they been installed before then, Moorgate would not have happened." 
There had been another seven serious collisions before Moorgate, which did not involve loss of life and injury, but were serious nonetheless. The blog comments continue, quote, The majority of those collisions involved 1938 tube stock units, and the one involved in the collision at Moorgate had been sent from Drayton Park from Neesden with brake and motor defects, and a defective dead man's handle, and was due to be taken back to Neesden to be scrapped. In other words, the cause of the collision was mechanical failure on a train that should not have been on a railway track in the first place. LT and HMRI covered up the cause to blame a wholly innocent train driver. We need a new judge-led public inquiry where all the evidence should be made available, including the coroner's inquest witness statements." These comments are entirely unsubstantiated as far as we can ascertain, but what is particularly interesting is that 45 years after the event, there continues to be such a vibrant debate about what happened on the morning of the 28th of February, 1975, with no logical explanation listed. Further attempts have been made to identify a medical or psychological explanation for the day. As one correspondent described, quote, depending upon the design of the train and the height and frequency and brightness of the tunnel lights, the driver may have been subjected to a flicker rate that can cause disorientation or other effects. Under the influence of this, the driver can effectively disassociate. The driver may take up to, say, two and a half seconds to reorientate, and say two and a half seconds after that to react. The reorientation may be caused by something trivial, such as a minor change in lighting conditions, or depending upon the depth of disorientation, it may need something more major. Repeated exposure to such conditions would appear to increase the tendency for this condition and decrease the ease of recovery. So was Leslie Newson still reorientating after a disassociation incident a few seconds before? If this had happened to Leslie before, how had this affected or lengthened his disorientation and reorientation periods? Some alternative explanations that were not considered by the inquiry at the time have since emerged. We've heard about drivers going through stations because they've become disorientated due to the monotony of the shift. An interesting exploration of this theory raised by bloggers is the suggestion that one of the stations on the line, Essex Road, was normally closed on Sundays, and when it was closed, the lights in the tunnel before the station were lit to remind the driver to drive straight through and go into the tunnel beyond and forward to the next station without stopping. That morning, a Friday, the lights, as we know, were on at the crossover section of the tunnel just before Moorgate Station because of track work. We can also recognise that driving the short journey of 2.38 miles between Drayton Park and Moorgate may become very tedious. Evidence from drivers show that they can sometimes become disorientated and forget which direction they're travelling in. The three intermediate stations would look very much the same northbound or southbound from a driver's viewpoint. If Leslie was wrongly expecting the next station to be Drayton Park, 
its non-appearance might have utterly confused him and caused him to respond in disbelief by accelerating the train in a futile attempt to make the expected daylight of Drayton Park appear. Others, like Lawrence Marks, a journalist whose father was killed in the crash and who has made a documentary about the crash, are convinced, after investigating the case, that Leslie committed suicide. A suggestion refuted by Leslie's family, who said he would, quote, never do something like that. Lawrence Mark's conclusions are both supported and challenged by experts, so cannot be treated as a definitive explanation. Despite all of the speculation, the real reasons for the most devastating peacetime rail disaster on London's underground system remains a mystery. One of the most distressing issues for relatives of the dead of the Moorgate crash was that no memorial was ever erected in their memory. There was no place where relatives and even future unborn grandchildren could go to remember their parents, grandparents and relatives. It took a public campaign in the 2000s to create a memorial stone that lists those who died. It's located in the southwest corner of Finsbury Park, 410 metres north of Moorgate Station. The memorial was unveiled in July of 2013, after a long campaign by relatives of the victims. On the 28th of February 2014, a memorial plaque was also unveiled by the Mayor of London on the side of the station building in Moore Place. With all of the controversy surrounding this case, there was a lot of coverage of the most deadly accident ever on the London Underground in peacetime, and very little covering the victims of this case. Thankfully now, there is a memorial stone, and we can remember the 43 victims. Jeffrey Benton, Stanley Boggis, Peter Bradbury, Anthony Bykovsky, Haiyan Chan, Janet Cook, Alfred Corking, Adrian Crotty, Janice Donovan, Kenneth Edwards, Sidney Eva, Charles Gale, Cecil Genin, Alistair Gordon, Barbara Halford, Teresa Hall, Henry Hobbs, Gillian Hughes, Kathleen Hughes, Lena Vella Lombardo, George McMurdy, Michael Maddox Watson, Rosemary Mancy, Bernard Marks, Geoffrey Marsh, Elizabeth Marsden, Teresa Giorgiades, Sherifat Mayaleki, Ala Adin Nassim, Nazakan Nassim, Leslie Newson, Mary O'Brien, Stephen Payne, Joan Phelps, Donald Prevost, David Redfern, Chiman Shah, Jane Simpson, Shaman Saeed, Thomas Thrower, 
Colin Ward, David Wilson, and Frederick Wanderling. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.